On the clearest nights, when the winds of the Ethereum were calm and peaceful, the great merchant ships with their cargoes of Acturian Sura crystals felt safe and secure. Little did they suspect that they were pursued by podcast hosts. Amazing. That was really ambitious for you, actually. Um, well, look, I wasn't just... going to sing Goo Goo Dolls, all right? Like, you know, I know my, I know my limits. You know, I knew, like I wasn't my going to try and emulate God's gift to music and art, you know? Mm-hmm. Like the last gift of the Greek muses, uh, the Goo Goo Dolls, um, who I know a weird <laughs> amount about because they're kind of Western New York, Buffalo adjacent. So my parents listen the to them Goo a lot. Dolls. It, they are, that entire era of like sort of alt rock music, I feel like yeah. is ingrained in all 2000s. of our brains. Of course it is, yeah. Like, we were convinced that it was good. Like, what's the cutoff for that era? Like, Nickelback, all that stuff. I feel like Paramore's the cutoff where it's like, no, this might actually be good. Paramore. Like, I feel like Paramore Paramore, gets grandfathered in after that era. It is, because Paramore and groups like Nickelback or the Goo Goo Dolls are not in the same vein, not even a little bit. That's a different genre. I mean, yeah, but it comes in the. I mean, yeah, I guess you're right. Like, I'm not good at. See, I'm incredibly you're about good to, at classifying. You're about to launch me into another 9/11 talk, and I don't think we want to go there. Okay. Please, I trust. You know, I. No, it's as you know a, personally, my 9/11 takes are unhinged. Yes, I've <laughs> worked very hard to keep us out of that sphere <laughs> for a year change with this podcast. And also, I was going to make a comment about the Monday Night Football game on 9-11, but there's no, no, I'm just going to take the high road, I'm just going to step around it, and we're going to keep moving. Welcome to the Disney desk, everyone. I'm Carter. And I'm Sydney. And we are moving right along with Disney desk and friends with another guest. Would you Woo! like to introduce them, Sydney? Yes, um, this is my friend slash uh, co-worker, Ren. Ren, say hello to everyone. Hi, everyone. Yeah. Friends and viewing public. Yeah, tell us a little about, about yourself. Oh, gosh. Um, well, uh, my name is Ren, spelled like the bird. Uh, and um, for since this is an audio medium, I'll let everyone know that I have green hair. Mm-hmm. Um, Important context. Yeah, uh, I don't know. There's not much about me. I'm uh, I I'm a adult self-identifying nerd who pretty much loves comic books and anime and video games and Disney and stuff like that. And amongst all things Disney, my favorite Disney thing happens to be Treasure Planet. So that is why I've been called upon today. Which, by yes. the way, is what we're talking Excited. about. I realize we haven't actually mentioned what we're talking about today. Oh, did we not? Did you guys not? I was like, oh, no. no. Oh, no, that's yeah. fine. But you, you did the whole intro, which is the first lines of the <laughs> film. So yes. Right. Where the, the lines that really are, like, like, I appreciate that this movie is very upfront with what it is. Like, the marketing tried to spin it as, like, cool. Like, this is the cool Disney movie that, like, all you tweens and, like, young adults who are now too old for Disney can watch. I love that the movie just immediately starts with, like, hey, look, this is the pirate sci-fi shit we're going to be dealing with. Like, you can get off the bus, you can get off this train right now. If, oh, yeah. If you don't like this stuff, now's your chance. Otherwise, you're in for a ride. But, yes, we are talking about the 2002 film Treasure Planet, which, you know, again, when as we were taking flyers out, this is one of the ones that, like, 
caused the biggest exclamation point in my head because through a lot of our talks, Sydney, both on uh, the main feed and the Patreon, we have somehow kind of inadvertently danced around this film for quite a while right. now. It feels like one of the ones that we've kind of been destined to do in some way, shape, or form. I guess. I, I didn't think we would do this until I found somebody, and truly the only person that I have ever met, that has claimed to like slash remember this movie. And that's why I was like, oh, this is perfect. We, yeah. we, like, this is our in. We have a, a, a reason. We have an excuse. It is a true love affair. I don't know. Again, this is purely for you two. But if you look up there, just on my lamp. No way. <laughs> I can just kind of Come move on. A Leonardo. Well, there's Leonardo, but there's also <laughs> this handsome devil. They made adorable. Funko Pops for this? I did not know that they sky. made Funko That's, Pops for yeah. this. Yeah. Wow. Is, yeah. That a, like, deep, is that a legit product or is that a wow. custom? Oh, this is the legit Funko Pop of Jim are you, Hawkins. Are you serious? Yes. They made a... See, the once you get the Funko well. Pop, you've gone to the point of no it's, return. I also have a t-shirt from the original like release of the movie. Wow. Like, okay... I mean, I, I have believe two that out they of the made... three products I'm pretty sure exist for this movie. <laughs> no, because Funko Pops didn't become a thing till like what, like 2015. So like, yeah. someone had to be like, "No, we're making this." Yeah, someone and had to. Yeah, someone had to be like, this "Movie, right? Sure. Absolutely." Because it's this amazing. film, this film does have a legacy, but it has a legacy of non-existence or a legacy. It's a bit tarnished, I'd say, because it is yes. one of the movies where like Disney was like. The, the, the tinfoil hat theory is that Disney purposely tanked this movie. Well, I and have my whole... made this movie tank. I have my whole history nerd section of this episode where I talk about, yeah, like, the 17-plus year history of two men in Hawaiian t-shirts trying to get this fucking movie made. And, yeah. like, yeah. yes. I, it feels like... Look, Disney has a bad knack for pulling the plug on certain films they no longer believe in. Uh, the Rescuers Down Under, famously, the director was in tears, like, begging them not Ugh. to pull the marketing after a week and a half. And they're mm. just like, I'm sorry, man. It's just, it's not happening. Uh, you know, they left Strange World to die on the vine, basically. Like, they, whatever marketing they did, it felt like negative marketing at some point. Um, yeah. This is another one of those films. And this film does have a legacy of kind of being the last hurrah, the last kind of chance for hand-drawn animation, and it's sort of failures financially. Not not critically, because it did get decent reviews, and as we'll talk about it, I this is the first time I've watched it all the way through, and I gotta admit, I kinda really like it. As yeah. Every now and then, I'm, yes. like, I've just been sitting yes, around the last few days and <laughs> been like, ah, oh, shoot, this is really fun, isn't it? Um, yeah. But we will it talk... Is. You know, we will talk about all of that, but before we dive headfirst into this episode, it is time for another Internet Minute. All right, Carter, um, what is your Internet Minute for this week? Okay, so this is kind of a broader one, not referencing any specific tweets. Well, a bunch of tweets, but I'm not going to pull up each one individually. Um, so me and Sydney recently have been watching a brand new show called Fiona and Cake, which is a sort of spin-off expansion, sequel, prequel, midquel to Adventure Time. I did not factor in how much like obscure, semi-obscure and like notable Adventure Time lore you would need to know to understand yeah. all the ins and outs. Like after the cliffhanger of the last episode, I'd be like, 
Okay, so there was this one time where they wished they inadvertently created an alternate wish reality where, like, you know, the Ice King never existed. And I'm like, that might be important. I don't know. Um, <laughs> even all those little woodland critters in that one episode, I'm like, oh, yeah, they're from that episode where Finn makes himself really small and gets kidnapped by creatures in the tree. And then I'm like, yeah, but that's not important. Anyway, I figured we'd probably talk about the series as a whole, like, and what we thought about it when it's all, like, finished. I think we're at, like, the mid-ish waypoint at this point. Yeah. Um, you know, I've been very much enjoying it. But anyway, so <clears throat> the show prominently features a sort of long, reoccurring character in the series called Prismo the Wishmaster, kind of like a fan-favorite character. Sort of his shenanigans are, like, a core part of this adventure. And in the original show... He was voiced by Kumail uh, Nanjiani. Kumail Nanjiani. One of my, like, fave comedians. Yes, great comedian. Um, He's in my darling Eternals. Um, Honestly, one of the best characters in Eternals. Eternals is my treasure planet. Except it, I guess it made, well, it made its budget. I get it. I get that, though. Yeah. We all have a treasure planet, don't we? We all have a treasure planet. <laughs> better be the quote you pull from this episode. Um, but anyway, and he, someone asked him, like, hey, are you in the show? And he was like, ah, no, I'm sorry. I never got the call. Like, I would have loved it. I love playing Prismo. And, like, one of, like, a bunch of the people who worked on the show immediately came out and were like, dude, we absolutely wanted you back. We called your representation, and they just said you'd be busy. We would have worked around it. Like, apparently. Who's lying uh, here? Apparently, Kumail, like, literally never got told by his representation. Hmm. Like, they just, like, were like, ah, hard pass, no thank you. And I want to bring this up because I've made... Because, like, sorry, not to interrupt you, but, like, this happens with voice actors kind of frequently. Because I'm a voice actor nerd and I, like, follow people like Tara Strong and, like, Great Lyle and who, like, voice all these iconic characters that, like, for a lot of these, like, reboot shows, like, it's happened a couple times where Mm -hmm. they've, like... They didn't even know a show was in production. And it comes out and they're like, oh, geez, I'm just depressed today because I realized that my legacy character has been recast without me. I didn't even know this was happening. Like, so I've, I've heard of this, like, happening to, to lesser known, like, you know, like, well-known names than somebody like Kumail Nanjiani, you know? True. So um, I don't know. I mean, if I'm taking it at face value... Like, I've made a comment before of, like, and it's, if you guys go all the way back to our Owl House episode, I made the comment that, like, Dana Terrace mentioned it, like, yeah, it was just one person who decided they really didn't like this show, and that kind of just pushed it off the cliff, and that's why we got canned. And, like, I know that's hard to believe, because you're like, so many people work at these companies, so many executives, surely it's more complicated than that, it's like... No, sometimes this industry really is dumb, and it just comes down to one person not picking up a phone... Or, like, just heart deciding they don't like something. Or, like, just, you know, deciding to be obstinate for no reason. That just gums up all the works and creates problems. Um, like, one of my favorite examples of that is... Um, so, George Miller the Mad, of Mad Max fame, like, the director who made Mad Max, he um, was working on... It was, like, his first, one of his few big Hollywood films, uh, Witches of Eastwick. And, like, it was a big... Like, it was a big cast. It had Jack Nicholson in it. And, like, they were having trouble making the budget meet. So, he, you know, George went to the producers, like, you know what, I don't really need this trailer. You can, like, you can move that cost somewhere else. And the producer just was like, oh, so this guy's, like, a little baby boy. Like, he's a little beta, or whatever the term they would have used before the internet. 
Like, oh, this guy's <laughs> like, I can push this guy around. And they just started making all of these changes to like the script. They started making notes on like shots. They basically just tried to take the whole production over because they're like, oh, this director's like, you know, he's a he's a wimp. He won't stand up for himself. To the point that Jack Nicholson basically had to be like, if you keep screwing around with this movie, I'm not doing it. Like, let the guy cook. And it, again, it just like, Sometimes it's really hard to articulate how much of this industry is just run by one person's individual ego or wishes, but, like, Mm. yeah, that's the case more often than not. Right. Hmm. Yeah, hopefully down the line. um, You know, we keep joking about, (laughs) since we've done a SpongeBob month, and obviously, like, every month is Disney month, but um, we keep talking about a, a Cartoon Network month. I think that would break us. But in, like, the There's best way. Much. Like, Nickelodeon's you know easy I mean? because you're like, yeah, we could talk about Rugrats. We could talk about Wild Thornberries. But, but why we would we talk, talk about, about anything SpongeBob. other than Spongebob? <laughs> exactly. Right. right. Um, but um, I do want us to, like, dedicate some time to Cartoon Network. And I definitely, if, if not, definitely want to talk in more depth about this show. Because I never watched Adventure Time more mm-hmm. than in passing. And have, like, zero context for the show, and, and I really love it, actually, so. Um, yeah, I'm really excited that you're excited about it. Yeah. Um, all right, Sydney, hit me with some of your internet minutes. It's never a one-minute, right. I realize. I don't know why I'm so introspective this episode, but Treasure Planet does that. It's Space does minute. that to me now. Ever since that, we went to that um, Astrodome thing. Right. Right. That's what it reminded me of. Anyway, we can talk about that later. <laughs> Okay, so get this. Um, fun day football, anyone? <laughs> oh my Toy god, Story why didn't I think of this? Fun day football. What the fuck? <laughs> um, okay, so let me give you the rundown for 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 those of you listening. So, um so, okay, let me see. Where do I begin this? So, for a game this season, specifically the game happening in London, England, and we'll circle back to why that's kind of strange. It's not strange right. that they're playing in London because they do that every year because the NFL. So, basically, this is going to be a football game between the Falcons and the Jaguars um, <laughs> that happens in London, England, that's the normal part, but it's going to be totally animated with Toy Story character. Okay, no, that's wrong. It's not like we're going to see, like, Woody as a quarterback. We're not. We're not going to see that. But, like, the players are going to be animated. The whole thing is in is going to be in CGI animated, and the field is, like, set in Andy's room. So I'm assuming this is Disney's answer to slime time football which is nickelodeon's which had such amazing success like everybody loves the slime time football so that's so nickelodeon and cbs it's great has been doing a christmas day has is it always on christmas day or like Uh, the last no it alternates but um famously this past year it was on christmas day yes if you've seen the meme of patrick star watching a football game and being like, oh, that's not what he wanted to cook. Yeah, uh, like that dunking on Russell Wilson. Time. Yeah, so it's like this like Murdering sort of animated... Russell Wilson's legacy. Right, um, with Nickelodeon characters, just like 
like on the field, like the end zone looks like SpongeBob's face or like the the goalpost will like spit slime like or like that's like shaped like SpongeBob or like slime like is all animated onto the field when somebody like scores a touchdown or something like that. And it's like wildly successful. Um it's sort of like the NFL's reach into, you know, like kid content, but like famously adults love this thing because it's cool. It's charming. It's awesome. It's kind of a fun event. And I guess Disney was like, hey, we want to participate in this as well. But it just seems, I don't know, a little desperate. Like it, because it, it feels a little strange to me. It feels, it feels, it feels weird to me that, that we've chosen the London game to do this. Well, yeah, that's the weird part because yeah. I don't, I'm not Why? versed in a London's legacy with Pixar or Toy Story no. or even Disney for that matter. Right. Um, so here's a little bit of context I can give you. They have done this before, but with hockey. So a while back in like the heat of the hockey season, is hockey even going on right now? Like when did the fight no. cup happen? Three I weeks. don't, uh, yeah, okay, yes, yes. In three weeks right, it right. starts? They end in summer three like basketball. Three weeks when uh, preseason starts. Oh. So halfway through football season is normally when hockey season ends. I feel like hockey okay. never ends. <laughs> Much like basketball, they probably, it, <laughs> it would behoove them to tighten the season up a little bit. Um, right. But they did this thing. It was a promotional bit with Big City Greens, which is the one Disney Channel show currently running, like a part of their like current sort of Disney Channel lineup that I just have very little context for. I've heard it's good. It looks fun. It looks charming. I just like between that and Phibia and Owl House, I had to pick one to give the short end of the stick. And now Moon Girl's out and Ghost of Molly McGee basically made me realize I might have to throw out like my entire Soul Scouts pitch because it's basically the same thing. Um... Uh, but anyway, so the idea is, like, they would have this top-down view where the players would effectively be V-tubed. Like, the idea is, like, they had some kind of, I guess they would have some kind of motion tracker on the players' jerseys that allowed these digital versions and, like, characters to move around and, like, create the illusion that a digital game was happening. It was, like, cute. It was rough around the edges, but, like, the commentators were, like, very straight-faced and serious about it, so it kind of made it work. Um... I'm curious why they picked two weird teams to do it. The Jaguars yeah. kind of became the London team just because it's like, well, no one goes to their games anyway. No one's going to be pissed that they lose a home game. Right. You know? Like, Bills fans are upset, like, furious that we're losing a home game to play in London. But, like, Jaguars, there's not that level of um, righteous fire. But for me, what struck out to me is when they announced this uh, on Monday Night Football... Troy Aikman or someone made a comment like all kinds of stuff happens in Andy's room or everything happens in Andy's room. And I just sat and thought about that. And I was like, what do you mean by that? And then they just get back to the game. I'm shaking. What do you mean by that? (laughs) Like what? Disgusting, truly. Just disgusting. Yeah, like Troy... Like, Troy, get it together. He didn't think Yeah, come on, man. You're a professional. You've been doing this for a decade. Like, how many years have you done this? Honestly... (laughs) <laughs> but yeah i'm i'm very curious to see how this applies to football like i said the um the hockey one was cute and i appreciate like the effort but you're right like the slime time angle is just so much less sweaty yeah i'm curious to see how this plays out i feel like that's the whole thing though and um like with disney like comp like if we're Comparing it to Nickelodeon's version of things, I feel like Nickelodeon has always kind of felt more like a like a home project. 
in yeah. comparison to Disney, which is just like a juggernaut. So like Disney is going to, you know, they're going to, I'm sure they're going to put their whole foot into the thing, which can be a really good thing. But when you're Disney and you overdo it, which I feel like is sometimes their detriment as a company because they have the finance to do something that is probably a bit more advanced. Right. Like, you know, like, uh, so they're probably going to do something really ridiculous and crazy. And, and I think it, it just might be too much. Right. Right. It's like, okay, yeah, this is still football. Right. Especially (laughs) since like, yeah, yeah, you're right. Like Disney's going to like each player is going to be a little CGI person. As where slime time is just like, oh, animate a little Christmas present over the ball and have it make it look like the players are running with a Christmas present down the field. Right. Like, that's it. At the end of the day, you're still watching a football game. There's just these little things. <laughs> right. Well, Nickelodeon's whole branding is by kids for kids. And I think right. the slime time thing is a good example of that. Weirdly, as you're describing, like, Disney throwing its money around to be, be, maybe be too much, so much of the discourse around Star Wars now is their use of, like, digital face technology to basically resurrect or, like, make people look younger. And that's the best example sure, of that. Because, sure. like, Nickelodeon, you would just recast those characters. Right. Disney's like, we can make them look <laughs> These like people they're aren't 20 dead. Yeah. 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 So I don't know <laughs> if you guys have been watching Ahsoka. I've been vaguely following it, not. but not, like, fully okay. watching it. The last two episodes have featured um, Hayden Christensen as Anakin Skywalker. However, he is coming from a time in which Ahsoka knew him as her master. So he is younger, because this was during the Clone Wars. Yeah, when he's like 20. So, right. So it was during, like, and, you know, the whole thing's by Dave Filoni. So this whole thing is kind of like a love letter to Rebels, mm-hmm. like Star Wars Rebels and Clone Wars. Um so they did their best to age down Hayden Christensen so he looks more like Anakin when him and Ahsoka left. And then in the most recent episode, for a little bit, they go even further back to the right. Clone Wars in live action. And they age him down even more. And it doesn't look bad. And it works. Like It's like, okay, fine. But Hayden Christensen already kind of looks young. So I feel like kind of yeah. brushing those things kind over the isn't same really age that hard. For, yeah. It's a lot different when it's Mark Hamill. A lot yeah. different. The Mark Hamill know? stuff I is know. just weird. Yuck. Whereas Hayden Christensen <laughs> kind of has looked the same age since Revenge of the Sith. So like you don't have to, right. you don't have to make as much of a gap. We're not here to talk Star Wars. We're here to talk about the seminal American sci-fi franchise, Treasure Planet. And now back to your regular scheduled programming. All right. Um, do you want to talk to us a little bit about your experience with the film? Like, when was the first time... Did you watch Treasure Planet on its initial run, or did you come around to it later? Okay, so... Um, to, to pro- I'll go briefly back, I guess, kind of going a little bit through, like, my history as a human being, which is that um, when I was a kid, um, my grandfather would watch me fairly often Mm -hmm. and would read me books and one of the first books that he read me was Treasure Island Um, and I was at that point in time I became instantly obsessed with pirates Mm. I loved pirates I loved the lore of pirates everything about pirates I was in on pirates and not that has not changed like throughout my life um to which I still am very much obsessive, like obsessed with pirates, and like I've researched them, studied them, I've 
been on Blackbeard's ship, like all that stuff. What? So, um, oh, that's yeah, sweet. it's in North Carolina. Um, well, I knew that because I go to the Outer yeah. Banks a lot, but I never got to go on the damn ship. Oh. Yeah, so I've been, it's like, awesome. And um, so, when, and then, you know, as I got older, I got uh, very much into like science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was very much into stories about space and time travel and all that stuff. And then just so happened to, over the course of time, develop a, uh, a, a kind of a love for, like, the steampunk-esque mm. visualizations and, like, things like that. Uh, and then I saw the trailer for Treasure Planet. And I was like, oh, my God, they're making a movie that I, I dreamed. I dreamt this film. I dreamt it. It's a movie I dreamt. So then I saw it in theaters. And, uh... <laughs> You saw I it. Begged my parents. I saw in theaters. Um, I was eleven. Mm. I'm pretty sure when it came out, uh, around there, like ten or eleven. So I was very adamant. Um, begged my father. I was like, "We have to go see Treasure Planet. You have to take me to go see Treasure Planet." And then went and saw Treasure Planet. They had, they did have, to the movie theater's credit. Uh, they did have um, like a fun popcorn tub that was Treasure Planet themed. I did not keep it, um, but it wasn't like a good material. It was like a boring one. But yeah, so I saw it in theaters when it came out, and I loved it immediately. And it was everything that I wanted in the movie. I thought it was beautiful. I thought it was visually stunning. I loved the music, and I didn't know how to appreciate any of those things in movies or TV until Treasure Planet is when I started to realize, oh my gosh, that transition to when Jim is in bed underneath his blankets as a kid and we just transition right to him as a teenager riding his board and that transition from an artistic standpoint blew my mind as a kid. As someone who was already kind of into animation, like seeing how they did that and really that like eventually would eventually lead me down the road of really figuring everything out about deep canvas, which is what they mm-hmm. used. Yes. But like, um, and why the budget for the movie was so high and also part of the reason why it flopped. But like, oh, yes, I had some interesting um, numbers for on that front. Yeah. But like, uh, that, that transition and not just that transition, but so many of the other ones are so beautifully done. The use of tones and colors, and, and like you kind of, a lot of people compare this movie to Atlantis, uh, which is like fair. It is kind of mm-hmm. that adventure animation, non-musical anima- like movie that Disney has done very few of, uh, to the point where you can only really mention Atlantis and Treasure Planet. Right. Um, but like, if you look at the ju- juxtaposition of those two movies, it's like Atlantis is a more blue, cooler tones, and then Treasure Planet is more warmer tones, so you get more, like, oranges, more reds, more things like that. So it gives us more life, more warmth, more comfort in the tones of the characters' voices, the way they interact with each other. They have so much more depth than, like, any other characters in Disney movies. They have so much more depth, so much more going for them. Their positive traits are also part of their flaws. They're, mm-hmm. like, these characters are so well-developed and built out, and they're representations of characters that existed in, noveliz- in the novelization mm-hmm. that, at the, that time, was, all, like, 100 years old. So, like... It's it's just this beautiful culmination of all these different genres, beautifully written with these characters who are so beautifully developed and this art style that is so beautifully done, perfectly transitioned. The tones, the colors, all of it is just so user was done. And like I was appreciating all this stuff as like a ten year old boy, 
not fully understanding it, now fully understanding it, but at the time not understanding it. And then it really developed my love of animation, voice acting, just how a movie can be like not real people and still make me feel so intensely like about every aspect of it. So yeah, it's been a very intense relationship with me in this movie for a very long time. Damn, my guy, we just started. Like, we're only, we got another, like, 40 minutes of this episode. You and have a magical day, everybody. yeah. <laughs> oh, Damn. Keep, oh, I got more to say. Oh, um, well, Sydney, do you, do you have any relationship with this movie, Sydney? Like, again, we talk about it so, like, whateverly. Do you, like, do you remember when this movie was coming out? I do, because well, I have memories you know, on that front. I forget that you're older than me, Ren, and both of us. Mm. Um, when you say that you, that you were about 11, we would have been about six when this came out. Would we have? Yes, in 2002. Oh, yeah, we would have, yeah. So, um, I... Yeah, would have been eight. This is one of those things... No, you wouldn't. You would have... You're only... I'm a year older. Right? I'm older than you. Yeah, but if I were six, you wouldn't have been eight. Or seven. Oh, right, because you don't count, because your one is zero. That's Because so we're only six months apart. Like anyway. Okay. Um, we'll do math later. Um, yeah, if we were if we were good at math, we wouldn't be doing a podcast. We wouldn't have a podcast, I'll tell you that. Um, anywho, what was I saying? So, like, like many of the things um, that like were popular when we were young, or were, were I should say, were coming out when we were young, that I didn't exactly have. Um, that I didn't like. Ex- I don't exactly have a, like a personal really relationship with. So this is this would be similar to me as like Ponyo, where I've described mm-hmm. having like a lot of memories of the marketing. <laughs> like I feel like yes. I have a lot of memories of the commercials for this, the ads for this, but I don't I am assuming that I saw it at at like as a child. Because watching this now, I do remember certain scenes, but perhaps that's just me remembering the commercials, as I just mentioned. Um, I don't really, I couldn't tell you honestly, like, whether or not I really watched this as a kid. I'm just assuming that I did, because I feel like I, like, watched everything that was Disney as a kid, like, at least one time. Like, this would have been that period of time when, like, minivans were having like those built-in like vhs players with those like the height of luxury yeah i have a lot of so jealous of everyone who ever had those right had that and i was like oh god a lot of my movie watching happened on the road because i was in a very active girl scout troop and we were constantly doing these like long drives to these like campsites like in new york or like just in like upstate pa and we were like watching like this would this would have that would have been where I would have seen something like this because um, this certainly was not in my personal collection um, but it's you know I've I've kind of prepared for today like this whole like this sort of like theory because this this period of time in animation not just in like feature length films but also like in like televised animation in more like episodic animation is like 
sort of a very, there's a very specific tone. There's a very specific theme. I think I've described it to both of you as like rust belt animation um, that, that this sort of like really neatly falls into where, where, where animation kind of starts being a little more like narrative driven, but also like really domestic, but then also all of them sort of have this like, um, this crossroads of like, like being kind of antiquated, but like joined with industry or technology at the same yes. time. Very steampunk. steampunk heavy. Yeah, steampunk. Like I guess would be the way to describe it. But like in my kind of collective research, and uh, in what and what and also like based off sort of my memories of this time period, I actually think this period of animation kind of begins with something that is, like, actually antithetical to what I just said, which is, um, like, the Prince of Egypt, actually. I think... Huh. Yeah, and and the reason I'm bringing up the Prince of Egypt is because I feel like I cannot think of a film, a, a hand-drawn film outside of Disney that had the kind of, like, um, s- success that... Uh, that the Prince of Egypt had. I'm having so many brain farts today. Um, but then from that point forward, in this like this sort of like rust belt umbrella, that's like the best word I have for it, um, is Anastasia, Treasure Planet, Iron Giant, and Atlantis. I would put yes. all of those... This is a very interesting era for animation. Right. And, and, it, and it just fascinates me, and we can kind of get into that more, but it's like... As an adult, I've had more time to think about this, not just in preparation for this episode, but just like over the last few years, especially now that we've got these like massive databases like Disney Plus to kind of like actually look at things next to each other. Um, Mm. That I have more of a a relationship with it now than I certainly ever did uh, Mm -hmm. as as a kid. What about you, Carter? Well, believe it or not, I can tie this into Prince of Egypt using my superior powers of knowing too much about animation history. Yes. And being the bookworm of the group. Yeah. Like I said, I'm the one who knows all the history about the ancient temple. You're the one who realizes how the puzzle works so I don't get shish kebobbed. Um, Right. But, yes. Well, my experience is, as I said, this was the era where I was donezo with disney i wouldn't be caught dead other than lilo and stitch which kind of gets to exist in its own bubble it came out just before treasure planet as kind of like the afterthought that was like the oh we have the b team on this one i don't know um and it ended up kind of doing surprisingly well and it's a testament to how bad treasure planet did that you know lilo and stitch couldn't serve as this like great mouse detective-esque film where it's like it makes enough money that it justifies the existence of the animation studio but my, I remember the ads for this movie. I remember them distinctly because yeah. they all had the song Come Sail Away. They were leaning so hard into, like, the Martin Short shtick with the robot, the, like, oh, yes. solar sailing stuff, sort of, like, trying to make it look yeah. cool. They made it very much focused on, like, Jim being, like, a surfer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like a sky surfer. And they kept bringing this whole thing up about these three intrepid heroes, and they always marketed it as Jim, Ben, the robot, and Morph. Right. Uh, the little... Bl- and it's like... Which... If you, watch, if you watch the movie, which obviously the three of us have, those are not... It's not that way at all. That's, it's not a story about those three. Right. <laughs> oh. Like, Morph... It took me a while to figure out the idea of Morph is like, oh, right, it's like a parrot. 
Like, that's how little impact they have on the story. That's like, oh, you've adapted a pirate, the famous pirate thing, into this. I do like Ben, though. I do like, because I'm, I read Treasure Planet Forever Go, but I'm not that versed in it. But I do like, Sydney, are you familiar with Treasure Planet, or Island? No. Like the book? Um, So, in Treasure Island, the idea is one of Flint's crewmates, like, the timeline is much tighter in the book, so, like, Long John Silver, like, live was on the crew flint's crew like the idea is like he's the one everyone fears even flint's afraid of this guy and the idea is when they buried the treasure they left one guy behind he got he's like marooned on the island he's stranded and the idea is like over time he's just gone crazy this movie expands the timeline so it's a robot who's been here for hundreds of years who has literally lost his mind a chunk of his brain is just not there anymore and i'm like okay that's really funny that's a very fun like if we're going to do sci-fi adaptations of like classic literature that's the kind of stuff i want to see but anyway yeah so i was out i was like this looks like but this looks terrible i make <laughs> cool animation now i mean ice this is ice age time man yeah because i looked i went back and looked at like what other films came out i'm like leo and stitch that's kind of cool spirit uh spirited away scares me to no end because i haven't developed the idea of animation outside of the west ice age that's where it's at yeah um, but <laughs> Anyway, so uh, shall I go on my whole historical spiel about this film to give us some context as we talk about it? Oh, because it is funny that this film is lumped in with like the early DreamWorks stuff and like Atlantis because this film was seventeen years in the making. Um, there was a really great podcast insane. someone did where they interviewed the directors and like a lot of the creative crew. So let me. I'm going to do a truncated version of this because you know, I talked a lot about this um on our patreon but i was just gonna say like for you to say this this film is 17 years in the making it weirdly shows interesting how so like and we can talk because like i feel like when i was watching this especially towards the beginning like i really had my hard time like a hard time putting my finger on like what is this anime like what does this design remind me of and it reminds me of the little mermaid and it's like movement mm -hmm. quality so you're walking I was like I know I, I like, felt it too yeah yes. like this is a little <laughs> well wormy. you're walking me right into my points which is very anyway, exciting anyway mm-hmm. go on so the year is 1985 Great Mouse Detective has done just well enough that Mike Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg have decided you know what we're not gonna skip, grab the animation department let's make a couple more of these let's see what we can do and as kind of like a sign of good faith to the animation team who they did not make like they had a lot of butting heads during the production of Great Mouse Detective they're like we're going to do a thing called the gong show. So everybody come in with a couple pitches, anyone in the company, even if it's your kid coming into work to see daddy like animate. If they have an idea for a movie, just pitch it here. And if we like it, we'll give it the thumbs up. So Ron Clemens, who is one of the directors on Great Mouse Detective, comes in and he presents two ideas. His first is, hey, so I know we've always talked about doing Hans Christian Andersen. You know, Walt worked on Snow Queen for forever. What if we do Little Mermaid, but do it like we used to do? So like fairy tale, princess, animal characters, singing, the whole shebang. And they're like, ah, maybe. Do you got any other ideas? And he presents, as he describes his two-page like pitch document, Treasure Planet in Space. And he's like, this is my favorite idea that I've come up with. Like we adapt it, but add like this sort of retro sci-fi twist to it. And Michael Eisner... Um, it, and Katzenberg immediately go, Pfft. I love there's the weird <laughs> little addition to this um, 
where Michael Eisner argues, one, it's because Pirates were like really out right now. Like the last couple big studio pirate movies really bombed. But also Michael Eisner had just come from Paramount and he's like, Star Trek is the Star Trek franchise. They're doing a Treasure Planet adaptation soon. So we can't do that. And then they just never made that. Instead, they ended up making the Star Trek movie about the whales. Um, anywho, so um, uh, John Musker comes in, like he had, you know, he meets up with Ron and is like, hey, I actually thought that Treasure Planet idea was really, really cool. You want to work on that a little bit? Like we can come up with some ideas for it. And basically that forms the Musker and Clemens team, which along with Howard Ashman and Alan Menken end up kind of defining the Disney Renaissance. They're like the quad quadrant quartet of men who like, define what a Disney film, like a Disney princess film, what a Disney film is going forward. The rhythms, the pace, the cadence, like, you know, Eisner and Katzenberg end up being like, hey, uh, we got this guy um, we want to work with. Um, his name's Howard Ashman. I don't know if you've seen uh, Little Shop of Horrors. Um, why don't you work with him on Little Mermaid? Maybe he's got some ideas. They end up making that huge, like, seismic success. Like, it turned a profit on its first run, which is something animated films just really didn't do that often yet. So they're like, oh, cool, so we can make Treasure Planet now, right? And Katzenberg is like, I don't, mm, I don't know, it's still a little rough around the edges, guys. But tell you what, um, Howard, before he passed away, was working on an idea called Aladdin, you know, based on, like, the Arabian Nights. Would you like to give that a spin? And they're like, okay. And it becomes the most successful animated film of all time. Um, it creates a basically a billion-dollar marketing pool, even though now, for a while, Robin Williams wouldn't return anyone's calls. Um, they really did him dirty on that one. Um, and they're like, finally, finally can we make Treasure Planet? And Jeffrey Katzenberg loosies the football way one more time. He's like, you know, we want to do sci-fi, but we're just not sure about the pirate thing. Why don't you do John Carter? Why don't you do Princess of Mars? Why don't you do the John Carter stories? And finally, they got so pissed off, they go up to Roy Disney, who's like, all right, enough is enough. Stop jerking these guys around. They've made so much money for this company. Like, let's get serious here. And Jeffrey Katzenberg makes a deal with them that's basically like, okay, if you make one more film for us, just like uh, one of the films we already have in production, we'll let you make Treasure Planet. And I love in the contract, they even list, or another film of your choice. I love they're trying to weasel out of making this movie every <laughs> single time. So Musker and Clemens go through all like the old pitches and they're like, this Hercules one sounds good. They make Hercules. And then finally, finally, they get the green light on Treasure Planet partially because of those early DreamWorks films. Because, like, Jeffrey Katzenberg gets booted from Disney, ends up forming DreamWorks, and Michael Eisner was so paranoid that, like, all of these animators were going to go leave to work at DreamWorks. He's like, yeah, sure, they can make their film, whatever. We'll, we'll, we'll push yeah, whatever it costs, you know, we'll raise their salaries. Like, we can't afford to lose right. talent again. We can't afford to get, like, you know, completely run over, like, when um, Don Bluth left and took all the animators with him. Um... And yeah, it, it kicked off this era of like early DreamWorks. At this point, Pocahontas has come out and kind of pooped the bed. Like Hunchback came out and kind of pooped the bed. Like this is an era, like even Hercules, which was like this big, like they were like, they were expecting it to be the next Aladdin and it financially wasn't. So this era, it's emphatic that the Disney Renaissance is over. So everyone's like, all right, well, what is the new thing? So for DreamWorks, it is taking a lot of like, Disney adjacent ideas, but like right. doing different stuff. So you're like, oh, we'll do the Prince of Egypt. We'll do um, Road to El Dorado. We'll Sinbad. do Sinbad. Yeah. Like 
spirit fantasy sort of like mythological stories Sinbad but like favorite. different Sinbad was good I, I remember Sinbad I remember Sinbad. the trailers for that one a lot I want to come back to that one I want to give that and a El Dorado shot. to be honest I remember watching Road those two awesome. yeah well yes Road El Dorado classic. yes that is the one of this era where I'm like no this is just objectively great this is <laughs> like this isn't like Atlantis where you have to do some work to sell people on it like this is just good um but yeah, this era, like, everyone's trying to do something a little different. Like, so, I forgot how much of, like, the production pitch, or, like, how much the studio was pitching Atlantis as, it's not a princess movie, which now just seems so disaffected. Yeah. Um, Don Bluth is trying to do basically his own treasure planet with Titan AE, which, and that thing, stinks. Like, that, out of all of these, that's the one where I'm like, I will not even try to justify this thing's existence. <laughs> I had... I had Titan AE action figures. It's my first Matt Damon movie, to be fair. Oh my god. Wow. It's so I'm sick. not saying I liked it. I'm just saying it was my but, first you know, Matt Damon film right. and I had toys. <laughs> I didn't have a lot of set I didn't have a lot of agency in the toys that Burger King was selling. Right. You, <laughs> <laughs> you didn't you didn't have enough stock to show up at the pitch meetings. Was not in the pitch meetings. I would have made right. them give us treasure they didn't plans. Get your stuff. Emails. They did not. Right. Um they didn't. Still but, writing them. <laughs> yeah, this was, like, a part of the Disney Renaissance inadvertently. It was, like, like, you know, it was, like, imagined as a part of this lineage of Little Mermaid, Aladdin. It should have been a part of, you know, if they had gotten their way after Little Mermaid, that would have been made alongside Aladdin and Beauty and the Beast and Lion King. Um, and it's good that it didn't because, like, they clearly needed the technology they were using to advance way more. This is another film that does use deep canvas, which they pioneered during Tarzan, which the idea is it lets you create 3D spaces but then paint over them to create the illusion that it's more traditional animation. Um, you mentioned the budget on this. To give you a reference, so this film allegedly cost around $140 million. Um, Pocahontas, which was, like, the big... One of the last big, full-on, hand-drawn movies Disney would do in terms of, like, we're betting the farm on this. Much like Sleeping Beauty, it was one of these, like, every, every all of our best animators are working on this. That made, that cost $55 million. So almost, like, a third wow. cheaper. For reference, Encanto is somewhere in the $150 million. So that's how expensive Treasure Planet was. It created a new tier that they haven't gone over yet in terms of how much an animated film has could cost. But, like, yeah... The comparing it to Little Mermaid, I think, is appropriate because I think what hurt this film in its sort of, like, history is it is achingly sincere. Whereas, like, Atlantis is trying to be kind of, like, too cool for... Like, a lot of these films, like, especially because this is around Shrek 2 and around Ice Age and around, like, um, Atlantis or even, like, you know, this whole era of animation is trying to be cool. It's trying to be too cool for the room. Like, it's trying to get boys back into animation. Whereas this film feels like it was made right after Little Mermaid in terms of being, like, sweet and sincere and very earnest in its emotion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree, absolutely. And it's, it's also, like... Because it's, it's a weird transition time period for animation because I, um, I think, like, as Sid, like Sid said earlier, things were kind of in the place where they were becoming more... They weren't becoming necessarily about, like, oh, let's put a bunch of shiny, flashy things on the screen and, like, right. not really worry so much about the linear story and, like, mm -hmm. what the story we're trying to tell and not really try to develop plot or characters. Like, they're cartoon characters. They're the same. They're the same here. They're the same at the end. They don't get changed because kids don't care about that kind of stuff. 
And then you get to a movie like this, and like this kind of era of animation and film, where it's like, no, 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 these ca- these aren't cartoon characters. Mm. These are real people that happen to be animated. They have quirks, they have flaws, they have goals, they have they have, and like, even if you're a hero, like you're not exactly like the best. You know, you're not always going to be the best. Like a, a be- the best example of that that I can think of off the top of my head is Milo Thatch from Atlantis, where it's like he's a bumbling. He's really smart, and deep down, he is very courageous, and he will stand up for the things that he believes in, and he's very motivated to do it. However, he's timid. He's not mm-hmm. willing to actually, like, confront or, like, have confrontation or to get what he wants, and he learns that throughout the process of the movie and going on this adventure. And so that was kind of, like, became the thing of, like, what characters do now. Right. It was, like, the Dan Harmon circle, <laughs> you know? They're taking these characters out of their element to get what they want, and in order to get what they want, they have to be uncomfortable. And then they come back to where they were, a completely new, reformed character. That's what Treasure Planet does beautifully. That's, like, the story right. of Jim. is like, I'm a miserable kid because my dad left, which is a departure from the novelization because Jim's dad died after Billy Bones showed up in the book. Right. But, um, but like, you know, but that's the whole thing, is Jim, ha- there's the status quo that Jim has. Doesn't like the status quo. Things need to change. He's taken out of his element. He goes on this adventure. He comes back, and now the status quo is different because he is different. And it's it, it's one of those things. It's yeah, told in the color they, story, yeah. and it's told in all that stuff. And that's where the it's, movies were going at that yeah, time. Yeah, it's pointedly, like, I do think, even the ending interests me because it's like, things don't, like, you know, they just rebuild the inn at the end. They don't, like, change it and make it that much better or gauzier. It's like, no, his status quo right. is kind of the same, but he's a better person. Like, he's grown from this. And I do think mm-hmm. that's the difference between this and, let's say, like, Aladdin and Little Mermaid. It's, like, they are fairy tales. They are very, like, right. they have very, right. like, arc stories where characters learn things in, like, a sort of fairy tale way where it's, like, a morality tale. Aladdin has to learn to be okay with who he is and be honest about that. Ariel has to, you know, learn... Sec- well, I guess, I don't know. A- Little Mermaid's Ariel tricky because it kind of is more Trident's <laughs> lesson of, like, You're right. you know, yeah. accepting that he has to let his daughter go. But, like, yeah, those are, like, straight. They're linear, whereas this is a little wavier. It's a little, like, I, I, John Silver, I genuinely think, like, and this is the first time I've actually watched the film all the way through. No stops, no, like, oh, I'll watch bits and pieces. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm just going to sit down and watch this. And John Silver really is, for me, a top-flight Disney character in terms of, like, a level of, like, emotional complexity and, like, sort of range that we hadn't really seen in Disney characters then. Like, we had great Disney characters. We had iconic Disney characters. We had, like, emotionally riveting and interesting ones. But ones that flutter between, like, allegiances and, like, pulls and Mm. conflicts so much. Yeah, there's this moment in the movie that shakes me in my core, like, a little bit. Mm -hmm. Because... It's a moment after after the I'm still here montage. Yes. Um, Which, God, that is the one thing in this movie that's so fucking 2000s. And I love, but I then know. I'm like, I kind of oh love God. it, though. It's so kind of good. a good bit. It's so good. Yeah, I love it. Oh, my God. And speaking of the Google dolls, I mean, but, uh, but the, uh, like, this, so it's after that when they're sitting in the sloop and there's, like, it's, it's, it's these series of, like, little subtle things and the way in which they're presented to you and so like the whole thing is that John Silver leans back in the thing and Jim is telling him asks him how he like lost his limbs Mm -hmm. right and it seems like first of all before Jim even asked the question 
Jim's saying something about changing things. He's going to do things like he's not letting on that he has the map for the treasure right, he yet, can't, yet to John Silver, but he uh, but he's saying that he has plans and he's going to change things and everything like that. And John Silver, that is when he decides to put his mechan- his cyborg leg up and begin to like fix it and toy with mm. it in a subtle way, almost saying like. I want you to ask me about this. I'm putting this directly in front of your face because I'm going to use this to kind of try to, like, I know you know something. I'm going to use this to try to, like, manipulate you. While simultaneously it comes off as, like, a caring moment because Jim asks him, how did you, how'd that happen to you? How did you lose your leg? How did you lose your eye? And because Jim was just talking about him chasing his dreams and doing that thing, that's when John Silver holds up his hand and says, you lose some things chasing a dream. And, like, just now, chills. That scene gives me chills for all the little subtleties in it. Like, John Silver just throwing, like, giving oh, yes. it a little look and then throwing his leg up to, like, make Jim ask him about the leg and things like that. They, it's such subtle character work in an animated movie. Oh, yes. At the time, you were not seeing those little nuanced subtleties in characters where they're, like, I'm doing this to manipulate you into asking this question and allowing the conversation to go where I want it to go. Yeah. And, like, he was doing that the whole time. And it's like, yeah, but, like, if you're not clocking it, you don't really know it. It seems so fluid and natural. But that's the whole thing. That's such beautiful character work. Oh, yes. This is, like, inter- like the entire Disney Renaissance is, like, overflowing with incredible little character moments and, like, character animation. Again, that challenge of, like, and it's a lot of what we were talking about with Spider-Verse, Sydney, of just, like, Imagine having this, like, layered thing of, like, you have the voice performance, but then you have to make a performance around that voice performance. And you have to have all these people who are drawing it act effectively. Um, Mm -hmm. Yes, this is some of Glenn Keane's best work. He was, like, the supervising animator for John Silver. This is as nerdy as I'm going to get with the history stuff. I promise everyone. Please stay with me here. This... Um, (laughs) Yes, like this is some of his best work since Beauty and the Beast where it was him and James Baxter doing Beast and Belle and just like basically the two greatest animators in Disney history just like doing an anime fight against each other where it's like, oh, you just punched me through five rocks, I'll punch you through the moon sort of thing. Um, There is a story I wish I could cite better where Glenn Keane described like he was trying to animate John Silver like his assistant football coach. Like apparently he really wanted to play football. That was like his dream before he got into animation. And he worked like his ass off to be the starting running back on his team only to get benched after like a drive. And the assistant coach came after him when he was despondent after the game and was like, it's so unfair what happened to you. I'm so sorry. You're going to do great things. And apparently they both just broke down into tears. And he's like, that's the kind of energy I wanted to bring into the scene where like John Silver is telling him like you have the makings of greatness and i hope i just get some of those lights like the lights off of your sail and yeah yeah, all like basically everything from the you give up a few things chasing a dream to like when the mutiny starts i'm just like this is if you need to sell someone on why character animation is so important if you want to sell someone on like the magic of drawing a person everything they do with john silver there because there's so many like valleys and angles and twists and turns because he has to play like seven different sides at all times like going from this incredible speech he gives him to basically like stabbing jim in the back and like trying to play cool with his pirate friends to then right after the mutiny starts having to try and convince jim like no no i actually do like you i just didn't want to get murdered by my weird crab friend right like yeah pays out like Like that whole time to keep him 
that entire time, have him do all of those things with all those subtleties, and he remains, at the end of the movie, a redeemable character. Mm-hmm. Maybe not fully redeemed, but right. he does, like, he is the scoundrel, and he gets yeah. away, and Jim he lets him go. He goes out in a weaselly like, way, but it's a likable weaselly right. way. But you know that, yeah, but and you know that, you know, he does care about Jim to an mm-hmm. extent. And he was Jim's father figure since Jim didn't have a father. Right. He did act as that. He did fill that role. He does care about him. It is the way it works. Like, that is what happened. And so he remains redeemable, even though he's a bit of an asshole. Right. Yeah, and like for me, it's, is like this there's, God, there's so many different angles. Sydney, what are some of the notes you were making? I, like, if I just I mean, ramble, I'll go off into space. I know. I'm like kind of just letting you guys like have your fun person. because it's apparent to me that I actually am not as much of a fan of this as, as the two of you are. Well, that's all right. Uh. Um, so, so I don't want to be like, oh, actually, I didn't really care for this that much. Um, even though I, like, agree with everything that you're saying, um, uh-huh. I still had some, some kind of issues with it here or there. Um, which of course, like, what, what movie doesn't have issues? But like, um, I actually don't feel, I actually didn't feel very fulfilled with the ending of this, of this film. But you know what? I'll, I'll let me tell you why. Because there's actually sort of like a bigger issue here, which I, I think this film has really weird pacing. It is Hmm. too fast. Um, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. It's the pacing is odd, and I think that too many things happen. As like from a storytelling perspective, I would always prefer that fewer little events happen, and that we actually get to sit with the weight of those events a little longer. Um, for instance, like when we're kind of like closing in on the. Well, first of all, like, I think my issues really begin with when we meet Ben, because we're right in saying that the marketing for this totally oversold this character. Mm. Um, Because for what we're trying to do with this, which, like, let's be honest, we're trying to, like, give our Aladdin a genie. I mean, like, this is kind of, like... You you can feel the animators trying to keep up with Martin Short and not Martin Short going yes. around the character correct i will and, give you that and all right okay so we're doing a robin williams thing and i'm not mad at that because i love me some martin short and i do love this character but i can't like it is disappointing this feels like a character that should have been a companion from the jump um or at least sooner in the story. It feels right. so strange for him to like be in the gang yeah. when we the, meet him so late in the story. The actual and, Treasure Planet part of this is surprisingly shorter than I remember. Like they are not yeah. mulling the Treasure Planet it's for very not, long. It's not terribly long. And that's the I so I guess like my quote unquote hot take is that Ben is my least favorite part about this movie. Um, I, I don't think the movie needed I don't think the movie needed comic relief. Uh, I think you had Dr. Doppler, who was doing just a fine job. Right. I think it uh, has Providing it. all yeah. the comic relief as the bumbling professor, and he was there the entire time. Uh, and he's also, he's a, he's a sentimental character who cares about Jim. He cares about Sarah, you know, and, like, he cares about them. There's and, weird and sexual tension. Yes, go on. There's yeah. weird sexual I, tension, even though he ends up getting with uh, it's the weird. captain <laughs> by the end of it. it it's a, it's a whole thing. I'm sorry, but, like, you also, know, Sarah, Sarah and um, the captain of the ship were... A little bit of an awakening for me as a kid. So I'm sure. 
but the um, but Ben. I love the captain like, character, it, but like if there was like a human resources great. of this, she would not. I mean, there's no, some red flags be, there in terms no, of yeah, like yeah, no, no, sure. boss employee dynamics. Yeah, I don't like it. I don't like it. Meanwhile, I see this furry stuff, and I'm just like, the Lord warned me about moments like this. I'm strong <laughs> and steadfast. They really like, I, have my I understand claymore. it now. <laughs> um, Jesus. Um, but Ben, because in the book, like, so we get we get Ben, uh, yeah. Martin Short's Ben. We get him an hour in to the movie. A little over, like, roughly halfway. Basically over, yeah, like two-thirds of this movie right. is like a clean right. 90. It, right, so, like, we're meeting this character who has been marketed as a main part of the team more than halfway through the movie. And, and, and like, in the book... He's like the character Ben serves a purpose, right? Uh, and when he's done serving his purpose, he's no longer there. Um, and then, and and that's kind of it. He moves the plot forward, and he does that, and he needs to do that. And then we don't really have to care about him right. all that much anymore. He was just a character who allowed us to move forward with the plot as like this castaway former member. In a novel form, it works. Yeah. But. Now, you can just stop referencing a character and your brain can logically be like, well, they're just around. They're just, you know, they're not primary here. Whereas when you're doing a movie, it's like, well, I can see him. Why is he just standing there? Why is he not saying anything? That's weird. I just like, see, like what you're saying, Ren, about him like moving the plot forward, it's actually a part of my issue with him because I don't like it where we have a series of conflict, like, we have a series of accidents or conflicts or like, oh no, like what's going to happen now? This the situation seems perilous. And then somebody's just like, oh, I fixed it in one second. And I feel like this mm-hmm. character has a lot mm-hmm. of like, oh yeah, we can stay in yeah. that house. Oh yeah, there's a back door here. We can just get out of the situation. It's fine. Oh, I'm just going right. to solve this issue. Like that is where I, it's like this chunk of the movie where I wish we had cut down to like one instance. If we had just like, if we had sort of like trimmed this down and just gone to the scene where Jim is fighting off the spider dude, whose name I don't remember. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then like spent more time with, yes, like more time with, with the actual treasure planet itself. Um, that would have just been a little more succinct to me. Um, right. No, I, I agree. And so like, that's just like where... Well, what I was going to say, like, this is sort of, like, why the ending feels, like, un- unearned to me. I, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. But it's, like, the ending is, like, a happy ending. Sure. But mm-hmm. it doesn't. Like, I don't feel that I we've actually come full circle. Especially when he, like, when Jim, like, shows up with, like, the cops again. I'm, like, I don't really feel. I actually, I actually don't right. feel that anything is different. Um, yeah, and like so, a, a little bit speaking to that, and I'm sure this is something that Carter was going to bring up uh, later on, and we can get more into it then. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, if you, but so technically, it never did come full circle because there was a sequel that was green lit. Yes. Oh, you can feel the sequel that was written. Yeah, you can out feel of the pores that, of this uh, thing with you Willem can Dafoe. Feel the cast. 17 years of ideas here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, so Willem Dafoe was also universe. cast in the sequel as the antagonist for that movie. Uh, for the sequel, there's a script. You could read it. I've read it. Um, Scroop is also the crab guy's name. Going yes. back to that. Um, but uh, another thing, also to go along with your point about like another reason why I think the whole thing is like that. 
we didn't spend a lot of time with Ben. We didn't have him from the beginning. And yet he brought in an entirely new plot line when he showed up about Jim having to help him find his mind. Mm-hmm. So and like so when he but when he does, it also doesn't feel that fulfilling because I haven't spent much time with this guy. Right. right. It's so more like him of getting just his a, mind back yeah. is an emotional thing for him, but I don't care. It's not like when it's not Aladdin genie being actually wishes for the genie yeah. to be free, and you see those cuffs yeah. fall off of his wrists, and you feel the emotional weight. Bingo! You feel yes. those cuffs hit the floor. You feel the genie's freedom. You don't spend enough time with Ben to feel when his mind is back that he is now fully himself again. Yeah. He's now completely himself, and also when he gets it back. He's he basically not the change. same character. So yeah, yes. I was expecting so like, something different. But from if him. you had him as, as like a C three PO who worked in the in the Benbo in the Benbo in the beginning, who was like who had lost his mind years ago, was like, and his father brought him back from an adventure. So he also has like a tie to Jim in like the sense that like this is what your father left behind was this broken robot, mm-hmm. and you give them that kind of relationship, and then throughout this adventure, you kind of link it to them finding Ben's mind. So now I've been with Ben this whole time. I know he lost his mind. I know probably he's a little bit sad about it. I know that Jim doesn't really care because he's like an angry person. So part of his growth as a character could be helping Ben find his mind. Right. And then Ben, because I've been with him longer now, the weight of him getting his mind back would mean something. Right. But because none of that stuff actually happened, he's an empty character who's just there for comic relief, who's pacing, who's the pacing of his story fucks with the pacing of the entire movie. Right. Because we have to do this whole C story that I wasn't planning for right. two hours ago. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because it's like a multi-pronged problem. Like, one, it's just a challenge of adaptation. You kind of have to have Ben there, but because you've also expanded the timeline, you can't have him really have that much of an emotional connection to Jim. Like, you can't have him have that much of an emotional connection to anyone who was alive back when, like, all of, like, the, the Treasure Planet was actually getting made. Um, right. I think, and this is a problem with so many of the, because Disney has been trying to do an action movie for so long, there's so many attempts at this kind of movie, sort of the more action-y boy, vaguely anime-adjacent, or, like, adventure-adjacent. So, like, Strange World, Ryan the Last Dragon. Every single one, like, back, the back half of the plot gets so episodic, because, and I think a part of it is just because Disney is so strict about, like, these things cannot be over 100 minutes. 100 minutes is the max we're ever going to allow one of these to be. Whereas, like, and maybe it's because we've been in a Ghibli space so much lately, letting it be two hours just really lets, like, the connective tissue between little episodes be so much more tangible. Like, it's like Paco Rosso's episodic. It's a bunch of little episodes. Right. But because we have, like, the extra, like, two minutes between every little scene to just breathe and let characters, like, sit around and, like, flex their, like, character, it just becomes so much easier to pull this off. Um, I will say, while we're on the topic of, like, adaptation and stuff, the one adaptation problem I have from the original book is I kind of don't... Like, I like Doppler as a character. Like, I think he's a very fun... Like, I like the balance of a comic relief character who's sincere it's like the cogsworth thing but at the same time i don't like that he's a fusion between dr lively and squire turolani because i don't like that this character who we're supposed to like is responsible for these pirates taking over the ship if that makes sense like in treasure island the idea is they go to this like dumbass shipwright guy who like you know he's not even the bad like he's kind of like the idiot brother of this like ship making group and he's like, oh, I got these guys to join our crew. And immediately the captain's like, where the hell did you find these guys? Look at these people. 
And then it turns out it's like, oh, these are the people who are looking for the map in the first place. And that's how we get introduced to John Silver and everything. Um, it's like, I don't know. It's interesting, like, the ways you have to adapt, like, Treasure Island to work in this context. The reverse of that is, like, I really do think the Billy Bones thing is great. It's clean. It's simple. Like, I love how kinetic the plot starts, where this guy literally, this turtle man, again, I feel like we're underrating just how delightful all of the dumb alien designs are in this movie. I just love a turtle man falls out of the sky design. and is, like, just grabs Jim by the shirt, like, you gotta get the fuck out of here, man. They're, like, right behind me, man. Like, shit, shit, everything's gone to hell in a handbasket. I appreciate any time anyone making a movie or show can just be like, story's moving along, story's moving along, everything sees, like, everything's happening, and then it's like, I'm literally going to drop a bomb. Not, like, I'm literally going to make something random happen that will change the direction of the movie and I'm just gonna throw it in like right. here's here's this like okay this kid's going through some problems he's got he's, his dad's gone his mom's at her wits end like with this hotel thing he wants a life of adventure he's got a little bit of like a Bella Swan after Edward leaves vibe where he's just risking his life and taking all these unnecessary risks because his dad left and like all these kind of things and it's like, okay, this is a story I can get behind. And then a Something turtle man clearly, drops out like, of the sky. And then a ship crashes at Tortoise the end, right in front of my house. Pirate. And, pirate. It, it, and I get this ball. And it's like, here you go. And like, yeah. there, his right, ship's there a little go. ball. Now we're off. He's a tortoise. He's bleeding right. to death. I love apparently a big part of Katzenberg's beef with this movie. He's like, I don't like this coming-of-age story combined with science fiction. And I'm like, you're describing Star Wars, one of the most yeah. successful movies in the history of Western and, like cinema. Like it's literally There's so many coming yeah. age stories that are science fiction. Instead of a, but instead of two like droids falling out of the sky with like secret plans to the Death Star, a turtle, a tortoise pirate falls out of the sky with a map to treasure. Right. But yeah, like in talking adaptation, the problem with Ben is like his purpose in the plot is to like his brain isn't as much emotional thing as it's a plot thing of like, well he has to have lost his mind otherwise he would be able to immediately warn them like hey this place is rigged to explode if right. you step one foot into it. So, and mm -hmm. by the time, like, that ball, like, by the time he gets his mind back and can warn them, it's already happening, so it doesn't really matter. And it's right. a shame because it's, like, that's a cool idea of, like, oh, the captain removed his brain so literally no one knew about this. And it ties in, like, I really like the premise of, like, oh, this is why he was the best pirate of all time. He made warping technology. But we can't enjoy that because, like, you know, like, we're in such a rush to get to the end then because we don't have that extra 10 to 15 minutes to just breathe. Um, yeah. And I will say, you mentioned Scroop. The one thing, one of my random notes from all of our, like, my sort of note-taking is, I love, and we're talking, like, classic Disney, talking about how this fits in the pantheon of, like, classic Disney films. I love that they give Scroop a classic, Di the classic Disney villain death of falling, but in right? reverse. Yeah. Like, if you're going mm -hmm. to be in space, oh, someone falls true. up, not down. And it's somehow yeah. even more horrifying than, like, you know, the, you know, evil queen from Snow White falling and getting a boulder crushed on her, or Gaston falling into a ravine, Clayton. or Radigan falling, in, falling down Big right. Ben, or Mother Cothril turning to dust and then falling, um, because he's just, oh, God, they make space, like, they make space so beautiful in this movie, but also horrifying. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, like usually when someone's falling, you can see the surface in which they're going to make contact with, and the falling will end. You you can see the thing that's going to stop their momentum. Right. If it's space, it's just uh, yeah. You're going. Infinite. You're just going. Right. Um, you're just you're just gonna go. Yeah, and that's like, I don't know. In general, like the scene, especially that scene with Scrooge, really underlines like what they were going for so much with this movie in terms of taking a classic Disney thing but adding. For some reason, they keep referencing, like, in all the behind-the-scenes stuff, they always reference James Cameron. They're like, we wanted to make a James Cameron movie. And yeah. you do see that, like, pop in and out kind of often in this film, particularly, like, during the mutiny scenes or, like, the action scenes where it gets way more CGI-heavy, where you're like, oh, this yeah. is why they wanted to use deep canvas, because they wanted to have that CGI advantage of, like, you literally have a camera that you can move around. Um, right. I Absolutely. love those shots where, like, the power goes out. Like, he's got Scrooge mm. at gunpoint, and then the power goes out. And it literally turns into, like, a scene from Alien where you're like, there is a thing on the yeah. ceiling somewhere that is going to jump out and that get me. That entire, like, that hallway, mm. like, under the decks corridor chase yeah. of Scrooge chasing Jim through the thing. Without deep canvas, like, without that animation style, right. like... Yeah, that scene wouldn't like it looks gorgeous it mm. looks beautiful and also feels it's so viscerally viscerally feels like you're running through a hallway from this like, oh yeah crab thing yeah like and like you know it, there's a sense of act like it, and you know it's because of the way that it was animated it really is it really is a lot to say it's hard to overstate style. how like because, like, Beauty and the Beast has that incredible sweeping shot going through, like, the whole, like, dance hall. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, that took everything some of the greatest animators in Disney history had. And that is, like, a fraction of how complicated it is to have these hand-drawn characters running through this space. Yeah, and then you had, like, even with, like, Tarzan, which was, like, their studio's first use of deep canvas, mm. truly... It was only used for, like, what, I think, maybe one-tenth of the movie or something like that. Right. It was, like, only used for a little bit, mainly for, like, the surfing scenes, like, on the branches mm-hmm. and stuff. That was deep canvas. But uh, this movie, it was all of it. It was at least 80% of the movie was deep canvas. The entire ship, any time any member is interacting with any part of the ship, that's deep canvas. Right, right. Any part of, any cybernetic part of, uh, of uh, silver, that's deep canvas. Like, all of that stuff is deep canvas all the time. Oh, yeah. So, like, that's why the budget was so high. But, like, oh, yeah. it pays dividends because it is a visual feast. Oh, yeah. This movie, like, like you know, we were hard on it in terms of, like, adaptation and plot pacing, but it is a master class in art direction. Like... Absolutely. Like, because I get why Katzenberg and Eisner were a little weird about this idea because it's, like, what, what does treasure island in space even mean like what do you mean and the answer is their system of like it has to be 70 percent old stuff and 30 percent sci-fi although they admit it eventually got down to 60 40 in terms of like like the ships need to look at least 60 percent like an old galleon or like an old pirate ship otherwise it's not going to work and it's like it's such a difficult balancing act to sell like oh these things can traverse space like all of this like renaissance like sort of renfair stuff needs to be able to exist in space but it works so well because it's like yeah pirate stuff is cool like renfair energy is cool like sort of like yeah. fantasy like celtic sort of stuff rules but also right. space is cool and it somehow finds this insane balance of like visual shorthand to be like oh this is like you know, this is like a wave, or this is like a whale, or this is like... It has yeah. to do so I mean, much work to it, sell you on the rules of this universe, and it pulls it off in space. Yeah. 
I feel like it's kind of easy when you're taking the ocean and space and mm-hmm. trying to make one the other. Because it's like, yeah, it's these two great unknowns, right? Mm-hmm. It's these two vast things that stretch for God knows we can't, we, we, the ocean we can measure, but like we don't know how deep it is or whatever, and we don't know what's really at the bottom of it. So there's, there's a sense meg of mystery there. to it. Space is the same way. So it's like, what if we take the elements that go in the ocean and put them in space? Right. And it feels like, and it's not a hard leap in logic, it's pulling it off. Pulling mm-hmm. it off is the hard thing to do. Exactly. It's like, how can we actually make it look and feel good and real? Yeah. How can we put real pirate ships in space and then somehow have to explain the fact that no one is suffocating to death? Right. Which <laughs> I did, you know. like, there's a lot of lore that didn't make it into this movie. Apparently, the Ethereum means, like, there are these little pockets of oxygen. And the idea is like, oh, skilled mm-hmm. captains know how to, like, navigate that so you don't all suffocate the minute you get up there. But, yeah, like, it's something me and Sydney talked about, like, the rules of the thing. You have to teach the audience the rules of how your story plays, especially for Disney movies right. where you have different magical rules or different universes for every single movie. Like, mm-hmm. it is very impressive how that opening just sells you on all of the rules so quickly. And, like, you know, you, you like... You have, like, three basically back-to-back-to-back scenes of, like, the little intro at the beginning that's, like, this fairy tale once upon a time story. You have, like, the mining city, which is more, like, steampunky, like, sad, cyber, like, sci-fi dystopia. And then you have, like, the port dock that is a fake moon, which rules. And it's, like, the amount of work all three of those scenes do before we, like, take off on the adventure on selling you on, like, how all of this is going to work is utterly, utterly impressive especially for a movie that we said is kind of on the shorter side. Yeah, I mean, they do massive work early on to, like, get all of it in there while simultaneously developing your character, mm-hmm. like, your main character. Like, we're going to show you... And, and that's the thing, too, it does. It's different, too. It's really unique, is that, like, when you get the intro and you're kind of learning the rules of... It's, it's, not, it's very rare where you get exposition that legitimately is a book. Right. Like... This is, I'm reading you a book that's explaining the rules of our world. Look right. at this, you know? Because a lot of people would be like, well, why are you talking down to me as an audience member? Like, you can show this through more subtle action and explain your rules in a more, you know, deliberately, deliberately maybe trick, like, drip-fed way mm-hmm. so I can understand them in, like, a few scenes rather than just you reading a book to me. And this movie does that. Its first scene is Jim... Reading a book, but again, that's telling you the rules Disney. of this universe. Yeah, that's classic Disney. Disney start with a book. Like the yeah. book. it always starts a lot with of them do, book. but it's never like it's the the book is like a fantasy, a figment of like this world outside of the story that we're in most Disney movies. It is you know the fairy tale book opens, and now we're telling the story of the Beauty and the Beast. This is Treasure Planet, and Jim is existing in Treasure Planet while reading a book that's based inside of his world, his world, right. where the Ethereum is a real thing. He's the one reading so the book. Shrek. He's the one reading the fairy tale. And that's how we're being brought into him and his obsession with pirates, his obsession with spacers, his obsession with travel and adventure. But we're also being introduced to the rules of this universe and the pirates that exist and the legends of this world and why this is important and like things like that. And it's all based in a storybook. And it's not opening and we're, we're reading the story of Jim Hawkins. It's Jim Hawkins reading the story that he loves that also is based in the world he exists in. And we can appreciate that and explore that world with him now. Yeah. Instead of being brought into it, you know? Yeah, I, like... 
damn it, I really am. God, the more I talk about this movie, I'm like, fuck, do I just really like this? Um, yes. What are some other points you guys want to Chase cover? that feeling. Like the like the sun with the sun waves. Even the like even the so two thousands like wave riding thing is kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Cause I'm like Yeah. Yeah, that's like what is a shorthand for like teenage delinquent in a sci fi world? And it's like, well, mm-hmm. he likes exploring, he likes sailing, so let's kind of combine a bunch of right. things. Crashing through anything that looks remotely like caution tape. <laughs> <laughs> He's a rebel. He's a rebel. No, I, I think a big Google thing Dolls. for me that I always like is the use of color to tell mm-hmm. the story. It's always been a big thing for me. The most obvious one in Treasure Planet is Jim's clothing. Um, in the beginning, when he is you know dark and brooding and missing his father, he's wearing a dark jacket with a black T-shirt. Mm-hmm. Um, when he gets more comfortable in his skin and his role on the ship and he's adventuring and he's kind of being part of what he believes is his purpose... He no longer has the dark jacket on. Instead, he is now wearing like a beige, brown, lighter tone shirt with his pants. And at the end of the movie, when he is a fully realized person, he is wearing a pristine white, gold trimmed and red military uniform. Right. So he has been this dark, dirty character who has been muddied up by the world and what it's done to him. And he goes through the wash, which is this movie, and he comes out clean on the other side. And you see that in him visually throughout the film as he changes in these looks. And there's all these other little kind of subtle things. And it's also just a movie that uses warmer tones in like a very appropriate way. So you get these golds and you get these oranges and these reds and these very beautiful tones. And occasionally you get blues, occasionally you get purples when it is needed, necessary, required. It is space we're dealing with after all. But, like, it never feels like, oh, yeah, we're trying to make this the ocean, so we're going to throw in more blue. We're trying to make this a cold story, mm-hmm. like, about, like, betrayal. So it's like, no, 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 this is a redemption story. Like, that, of, and the redemption is taken personally. It's not someone telling him, no one's telling Jim, his mom kind of, like, no one's really telling him, like, you need to do this because you need to be better. You right. need to get better. You need to change. He is taking it upon himself. He wants to be different. He wants to fix things. So yeah, like, that's where the whole journey starts. It's it a is self-imposed like, kind of journey. Yeah, it is interesting because, like, I define so much of this era of, like, animation as being very grimy and kind of gross. Like, Ice Age, especially because it's, like, early CGI. In early CGI movies, I just woofa doofa. They do not hold up well. Like, go back, like, I go back and look at Shrek, and I'm just like, this hurts. This hurts to look at. Um... And, like, even, like, you know, the hand-drawn animated movies of this time, I'm, like, they have a very, like, grungy, earthy look. But at the same time, this movie is so warm and colorful and vibrant, even as it's, like, kind of dank and dirty. Like, we're on a pirate ship with a bunch of greasy guys. There's a guy who just farts. Like, Morph is kind of like a puke color. And at the same time, it's like, man, this is such a cozy... Romantic is the word I would use. And I think that is what connects it to the lineage of, like, the Disney Renaissance. It is a achingly, like, sincere, romantic movie. Um, Any other notes anyone wants to cover before we kind of get into, like, sort of the wrap-up legacy stuff with this one? Well, I mean, to kind of piggyback off of the last thing that Ren said about um, using kind of visual cues to um, indicate development or change, I do have in my notes that I kind of appreciate the way that um jim and his mom are designed to look emaciated and malnourished yeah yeah. (laughs) they look fucking ugly it's a rope and at the end they look like they've had a meal in this movie is extraordinary yeah 
But like yeah. throughout the movie, I'm looking at Jim's face. Jim's face. I'm like, I'm like throughout the movie, I'm looking at Jim's face, and I'm like, God, this this kid also, looks he has, ill. He has bags under his eyes. In the like beginning. you can see his bones. I kept being like, why does he look so tired? And, and he's got dark his circles, cheeks. and I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. like. Mm-hmm. And in the end, this guy needs like yeah, some look, spring chicken. Some like Disney's figuring out how to make its yeah. CGI movies gorgeous. Like Encanto's gorgeous. I'm excited for Wish. Like Pixar has finally found a great balance between like its photorealistic stuff and sort of more cartoony design. But like, man, you look at this and you're like, why did we ever stop doing this? Why did we ever stop like telling stories through drawings? Because like, how much story we're able to articulate here through just like how a character is drawn. It's just so awesome. Right. Well, what was the gap? It was like, this was like, I think, this was like, there was two other animated films, like traditional animation yes. films slated for After Treasure Planet. Um, and then after that, it was over a decade, and then it was Princess and the Frog was the next one after that. So like, right. What's funny it was is really, it's not as big a gap as you think, but it feels like a thousand years. Right. It's... It felt very long. Princess and the Frog is 09. Treasure Planet is 02. But it feels oh, wow. like so three decades. Like the way seven. they talked about it, it felt like Honestly. a century. In seven years, not having a traditionally animated Disney film, like, that is a long time. Like, a long time. Oh, you wouldn't yeah. even notice, because it would have felt like a completely different studio. Because now it's right. like, oh, we have Toy Story and A Bug's Life and, and all these things. Little. And it's like, oh, Ew. wait. Right. This is crazy. Uh, I like Chicken Little. <laughs> Chicken Little is one of you the... You like Treasure Planet, take. so... Hot take, Chicken I Little love is one of the three films that I will only do on this show if we get 100 patrons. Like, I absolutely I, refuse. I want them banned from, like, discourse. But, like, yeah, <laughs> and that's kind of, like, tying into, like, the legacy of this film. Like, it's kind of hard to overstate how bad this film bombed. Like, it bombed at a level <laughs> that movies of Disney's, like, caliber are not allowed to. It came in fourth opening weekend. It lost to Chamber of Secrets, Die Another Day, which was, like, the last Bond before uh, they rebooted everything with Daniel Craig because it's just, like, something needs to change here. Um, It's the last Pierce Brosnan one. And Disney's The Santa Claus 2. Yeah. So, a summer adventure film. Another Martin Short? Is that... Summer Adventure film in, in Treasure Planet. The second one was not Martin Short. Oh. Um, yeah, that was the third one. Spencer Breslin. I hate that I know that. Um, but, uh, it makes me sick that so I know that. A summer adventure film, animated film, being released alongside the second film of one of the highest grossing movie series of all time and the most anticipate, one of the most anticipated movies of the year. Uh, Disney's own Christmas film in the Santa Claus 2. Uh, and then... Uh, a legacy character of James Bond. That is the movies that we're going up against. And Pierce Brosnan was a very well-received James Bond. Yeah. They, the, his movies were well-received. The but, movie um, made money. But, it just was like, okay, we have and also taken this deep as canvas, far as it can go. Yeah. And also, like, Deep Canvas making the budget as high as it was, mm. like, almost made it the goal. Like, and then it coming out, being a movie that was pretty much originally slated for summer, kept getting pushed. They didn't push it back a couple of weeks to like go beyond their Christmas release schedule slate. So you have clearly a movie that is like a high high sailing like summer adventure film that's coming out during the holiday season against Disney's own Christmas movie and two other blockbuster films that are like guaranteed to pull in everything 
and this is why my tinfoil hat theory is that Disney planned this movie to bomb. They did not. Want I disagree. I don't. I don't think that's why it did badly. I think. I don't think Disney's audience was ever primed for this. It. You know what? I can. I think both things can be true. I will be the mediator here. Because, yes, Disney clearly never believed in this. If they had believed in it, it would not have taken 17 years to get made. It wouldn't have taken Musker and Clemens making, you know, two of the most financially successful films in Disney history, and also Hercules, to get this done. Um, Right. Like, clearly, even after, like, Eisner basically made it out of obligation because he didn't want to piss off Roy Disney, and also because they really didn't want to lose these guys to DreamWorks. Because DreamWorks wouldn't have hesitated to make this. They made Sinbad. They made Spirit. They absolutely yeah. would have greenlit this. Um, right. Absolutely. But, and the guy who wrote, and the guy who write, wrote Treasure Planet did go on to write Pirates of the Caribbean. Yes, so. which is wild. Like, this is just in the gap when pirates are uncool before pirates become huge again. And yet no one's yeah. capitalized on that. Like, Pirates of the Caribbean made money, and then everyone else was like, I guess we're not making any more pirate stuff. And it's like, really? Everybody likes pirates. Feels right, like they did it. They nailed it. Why would we even try? And then, right. you know, but, it, but Black Flag was good. Yeah. Or like it is uh, insane. Black Sails. Yeah. It is insane that he, like, it is insane the Hail Mary pass. Because Pirates of the Caribbean went through, like, 70 scripts. And then finally he looks at, like, the intro, which really doesn't, it's just more of, like, a mood setter of, like, the skeleton steering the wheel and, like, dead man tell no tales. And they go, zombie pirates. And it's, like, yeah. that just makes one of the most successful films of all time. But anyway, like... To your point, Sydney, I feel like this movie is frustratingly right in the middle of everything. Because it's Disney trying to do something different. It's trying to win over boys. Like, you know, if this was like a live action movie with kind of like middle of the road. Pirates of the, yeah, it, exactly. They already had Pixar. And like, if this was came out with Pirates of the Caribbean level CGI, um, like, and it was live action, I think it kind of would have made a quiet killing because it would have been like a big boy franchise. So... Like, you're not getting those guys. They're already out on Disney. They're seeing this, like, puppy dog-eyed, like, right. you know, main ant- heartthrob antagonist. They're seeing these sentimental scenes with, like, you know, John Silver. They're seeing, like, this classic hand-drawn Disney animation. And they're just like, nope, that's gay. Um, using the terms that they would have used in the Right, 2000s. the colloquial term of the, yeah. Yes. Right, yes. Um, whereas, and, like traditional Disney animation people are seeing this and they're like, well, this isn't a musical. This isn't like a princess movie. This isn't Broadway, yeah. Yeah, and not appreciating that it's like, no, this is in that lineage. This is a part of that legacy. It's just a different part. And that's kind of why Musker and Clemens are kind of my favorite directors because they don't have it in them to make something like Shrek. They don't have it in their blood. Like, they're too sincere and earnest Midwestern boomers who wear Hawaiian shirts. too seriously, yeah. Yeah, yeah, to take themselves yeah. too seriously or to tell a story that isn't sincere and lovable. They look at this tale of Hercules and they're like, what if we make it like a golden age slapstick comedy? They take The Little Mermaid and they're like, what if we make this like serene, beautiful musical? They take Aladdin and they're like, what if we make it like a Vegas, like gaudy show? Yeah. Like, like yeah, yeah. they it's are. It's hilarious because the two guys who did The Black Cauldron. Exactly. They worked on Black Cauldron. Not a good movie. Yeah. <laughs> they worked on the exact they worked on the other era of Disney trying to get as far away from its identity as possible and they're like never right. again we're right. not doing that ever and then yeah. they just made four bangers in a row out of like obligation to the studio before getting their dream project yes and then they did that and it is hard because it's like I don't right. know we all have dreams and it's brutal when your dream doesn't work out 
And like, look, this didn't, and like, hand-drawn animation was on the way out anyway. And they've talked about that. Cause like the battle that DreamWorks and um, Disney got into where they're like overpaying animators to try and get the biggest names and the biggest projects only to have Shrek, this sort of like weird also ran project that went through production hell and they basically had to re-record it like three times because Peter Farley died. And then halfway through Michael Myers decided, eh, I don't want to sound like Peter Farley. I'm going to do this different thing. Like that becoming the hugest thing in the world just broke hand-drawn animation with a sickening crack. This just kind of was like the final nail in the coffin, but it was one of them. Because as you mentioned, yeah. like after this came out, there was like a, anything that isn't too far along that, you know, we can't pull the plug like is coming out. So like the last two hand-drawn animated movies after this are Brother Bear and Home on the Range. And it is so depressing to me that Home on the Range, well, no, because Winnie the Pooh fortunately came out in Princess and the Frog. But think about how That's long true. that is from 2004 to 2009, half a decade where Home on the Range was the end of Walt Disney Animation Studios' legacy. Yeah. We need to have a, a, a month of hate watch. That includes lose, Home on the you Range. Lose, you lose some things chasing a dream. Yeah. Amen. I mean, that is, you know what? Like, I try to do is what I call full circle. Yeah. Yes, that is a full circle. Like, I try to think of, like, sort of, like, sales pitches or, like, legacy comments or, like, sort of, like, headlines for whenever we do deep dives on individual Disney animated movies, and that is it. You know, it's the cost of chasing a dream. You created this mm -hmm. incredible, beautiful empire and kind of saw it end just as you finally got the gold. Any final thoughts as we wrap up? Well, I was going to say, Ren, if there's, like, give me, if you were in an elevator and you had, like, two sentences mm -hmm. to sell someone on this movie, what would you say? Sure, sure. Um, two sentences to sell Treasure Planet to someone that isn't Treasure Island in space. Um, right. It that sounds like that valid to me. Enough. Right? Yeah. That, I mean, how do you hear that? How do you hear that and be it's, like, no? Right. Be like, no. Yeah. For Treasure Island years. in space. Like, literally, <laughs> it's Treasure Island in space. And it, there's some variance, there's some differences and changes, but it's Treasure Island in space right say no to I that I think that's honestly. enough yeah <laughs> honestly yeah that kind of speaks for itself it's Treasure Island in space and it's my favorite animated movie that's what my two sentences would probably be and until we're back on those big wide Ethereum seas looking over the stars chasing greatness I'm Carter and I'm Sydney I'm Ren have a magical day Thanks for listening. The Disney Desk is brought to you by Carter and Sydney. Follow us on Twitter at Disney Desk for the latest updates about the show. Want more of the most magical podcast on earth? The Disney Desk is now on Patreon. For exclusive weekly bonus content from us, go to patreon.com slash Disney Desk and become a patron for as little as $3 a month. Thank you.
from like discourse. But like, yeah, <laughs> and that's kind of like tying into like the legacy of this film. Like, um, like sort of the aftermath of this film is it's opening weekend. It came in for I'm sorry. Can I go to the restroom for like two seconds and then we can wrap up? Yeah. I've had to go to the bathroom for like 30 Did you just minutes. stop mid-sentence? Yes. I do that there all the time. ample opportunities for you. Oh, my guy. Midway dogging, he remembered he meant to ask, I think. This dude. He does this all the time. You need a bathroom break. I get it. But I'm like, surprised that I haven't had to take one. I drink oh, a coffee no. and a bottle of water. I do, too. But I'm just like, dude, like, what were you, t- like... <laughs> it was literally Like, he was the mid-sentence. The- I'm like... <laughs> said three words of a whole ass sentence and stopped. <laughs> I was like, uh, oh. Like, just pee your pants. Like, <laughs> Honestly, at that point, put a water bottle down just there. Do just do it, like, yeah. Let it like, let it rip, come on now. This is a safe space. Right. I've, I've peed my pants before. This would, have, would not have we've we've have been a dignified version of that. We've all like, peed our pants. 